So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, verse 14 through 21, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This morning, I would like us to think about the church. When did the church begin? And what was the early church really like? I have a true and false question here. Did Jesus come to to earth to start the church? True or false? The answer is false. So when did the church begin? And what makes even this a church? Well, the book of Acts is a great place to begin. Because the book of Acts transitions us from the Old Testament into the New. The Old Testament with the temple and the priests and the sacrifices, we don't have any of that today, do we? The New Testament, it's all about grace. Part of the answer is found in Acts 2, verse 41. It tells us teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and especially prayer. If we go back to when Jesus was beginning his ministry, we see that he could spend all night in prayer. It was that father-son relationship. Soon the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, and that's why we have the Lord's Prayer today. But in the very beginning of that prayer, we have the words, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The disciples were looking for the kingdom. Jesus did not come to start the church, but to fulfill the Old Testament promise of a Messiah. He came to heal the broken relationship that we humans now have with the Father after sin 
entered the world. When Jesus was rejected and crucified, he became the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Instead of the priest sacrificing animals, Jesus was the sacrifice as well as the prophet, priest, and king. Nothing else is required except for us to accept the free gift of salvation. The book of Acts opens with Jesus returning to heaven. The kingdom promises of the Old Testament are still in place and will come sometime in the future. So what do the disciples do now? Well, they were told to wait in Jerusalem. And then Peter, the fisherman, preached with boldness about who Jesus was. Acts 2, verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. You see, Jesus of the Old Testament, God of the Old Testament, I mean, is also Jesus of the New. I always thought there were two, you know, but they're all one. And for us, he's not just a historical figure that we read about, but he's Lord of our life. He's the reason we do what we do, why we act, forgive, fellowship, and on and on. And how do we develop this relationship with the creator of the universe? Through prayer, study, and worship. So the fellowship of believers grew into groups, didn't they? Meeting, they met in homes, teachers were teaching who Jesus is, just like we do today. Now we've all heard of the word theology, haven't we? It's a big word. People ask, hey, what's your theology? I guess that one would be an essay question, though, wouldn't it? For this church, we have what we call the Apostles' Creed. That's why it begins with, Christian, what do you believe? It's your theology. In the book of Romans and following, Paul teaches us how to grow in our Christian faith, to know what we believe. It's Paul who answers the question, what is the church? Paul's letters, Romans through Philemon, are written as a blueprint of theology. What we believe as individuals and as a corporate body of believers called the worldwide church. In Ephesians 3, verse 14 through 21, Paul has given us a prayer that summarizes what we need to share with others in explaining our faith. Paul is praying here for the Ephesian church. Now, I love this prayer. I went to night school seminary for five years, and we broke up into groups one night, and everybody had a piece of this prayer, and we had to explain it to the other groups. I thought it was so neat that I thought I'd memorize it, and that's why I wanted it in your bulletin this morning. We could all have the opportunity to memorize that prayer in the English Standard Version. The 
The best part of it is you could change the pronoun. Paul is praying for the Ephesians here, but you could change it to I. You can change it to we. You could give a, a devotion just through this prayer. But this prayer is an example of theology on its knees. Let us begin with the first line. It says, I bow my knees before the Father. Now this is not an instruction that demands physical posture during prayer, although as children, we've probably all kneeled on the side of our beds and prayed, now I lay me down to sleep. Prayer, kneeling for prayer, suggests an attitude of submission, reverence, and passion. And the next line, every family in heaven and on earth, if saved, we are already known by the Father, aren't we? But Scripture teaches us there are two spiritual fatherhoods, God's and Satan's, to believers as well as non-believers. God is the heavenly Father of those who trust Him, and Satan is the spiritual father of those who do not. 1 John 3, verse 10 declares, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Every family of believers is a part of the one spiritual family of God in which there are many members, but only one Father. Paul's first request for this divine family is that God would grant them according to the riches of his glory. Now, a wealthy person giving $50 would be simply giving out of his wealth, wouldn't he? But to give $50,000 would be giving according to his wealth. And for God to give according to the riches of his glory is absolutely staggering because his riches are limitless. And that's exactly the measure by which Paul asked God to empower the Ephesians and us. We as Christians are to be like Paul and being sensitive to the spiritual needs of others. For the salvation of the unsaved and the spiritual growth of the already saved. We see in this prayer that it's more difficult to appreciate spiritual riches than to appreciate material riches. So what are the riches of his glory? Number one, that God chose us before the very foundation of the world. Number two, his redemption. We are saved, and in God's sight, we're perfect. We are forgiven, and God throws away the list of our past wrongs. And number three, he gives us an inheritance with his son, Jesus Christ. We are equal with the Son. Paul isn't praying for God to give us material riches, but that he would allow believers to be strengthened by God according to the riches they already possess. We all have spiritual gifts. We receive them when we're saved. 
He wants the Ephesians to live lives that correspond to the spiritual wealth they have in Christ. The first step in living like God's children is to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Yet most Christians never seem to get to this first step, never knowing what it is to see God's power fully at work in their lives. They suffer. The church suffers. The world suffers. Because the inner man of most believers is never strengthened with power through his spirit. Now as each of us gets older, the outer physical part of us gets weaker and weaker, doesn't it? But the inner spiritual part of us should continually grow stronger and stronger with power through his spirit. So what is the purpose of our being strengthened in our inner beings so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now the proper order seems to be reversed here because every believer at salvation is indwelt by Christ. 2 Corinthians 13 and Colossians 1 verse 27 tells us this. We cannot, we cannot have the Holy Spirit in the inner man until we have Receive Christ as Savior, Romans 8, verse 9. So if all believers are in Christ, then this is referring to our spiritual growth as believers. Without growth, we do become the frozen chosen, don't we? And to the point of being out of fellowship with Christ. How do we know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us? By faith. We practice as well as receive his presence by faith. Our next verse says that, that you are rooted and grounded in love. We see three verbs here. Paul uses three pictures to convey this idea of spiritual death. Three pictures and three verbs. The first one we talked about was dwell. The verb dwell means to settle down and feel at home. Christ wants to settle down in each of us in an ever-deepening relationship in every area of our lives. The verb rooted moves us into the plant world. Ask yourself, from what do I draw my spiritual nourishment and my stability? Our roots need to go deep. And grounded is an architectural term. In construction, the most important part of the building is the foundation, isn't it? The saying goes, if you don't go deep, you can't go high. So we are grounded in our faith so we can go high spiritually. So we can comprehend and understand Christians in the past, and for, through history, and the present, as well as the length and breadth and height and depth of Christ. It's like sitting on the top row of a football stadium. You look down, you see the depth. You look across the breadth, the length, the height. 
If you think about it, it's in the shape of a church, isn't it? But also, the love of Christ. Now, I know you've all seen these banners here. These are called the, the fruits of the Spirit. The first one, though, says love. Now, you can't have anyone, any of these others without love. You can't have peace. You can't have patience or kindness. Definitely not gentleness or self-control. Every one of these are a subcategory of love. Love is an attitude of selflessness. And we can only have such love when Christ is free to work his own love through us. Romans 5.5 5 tells us that when we are saved, God's love is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to each of us. 2 Thessalonians 3.5 tells us that it is the Lord himself who directs our hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So when we comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of love, it's to understand that love goes in every direction and to the greatest distance. It goes wherever it is needed for as long as it's needed. Then Paul tells us that to know the love of Christ even surpasses knowledge. Now you see, knowledge to Greeks was a very big deal. And Paul, being half Greek, he knew that the Greeks lived for knowledge. But Christ's love exceeds knowledge. Christ's love takes us beyond human knowledge because it's from a higher source, isn't it? We are commanded to love because we have been given love. God always gives before he commands anything in return. Remember that. And love is one of Christ's greatest gifts to his church. Think of worldly love. It lasts as long as it gets, doesn't it? Christ's love loves for what it can give. And finally, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is the fullness of God? Well, after salvation, we're strengthened by the Spirit, aren't we? This leads to the indwelling of Christ, which leads to abundant love, which leads to God's fullness and God's glory in each of us. We don't really understand it. We can only believe it and praise God for it. I have a cute story. J. Wilbur Chapman, a Presbyterian evangelist in the late 1800s, it's a long time ago, often told of the testimony given by a certain man in one of his meetings. The man said, I got off at the Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp, and for a year I begged on the streets for a living. One day I touched a man on the shoulder and said, Hey, mister, can you spare me a dime? As soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see that it was my own father. I said, Father, do you know me? 
throwing his arms around me. And with tears in his eyes, he said, Oh, my son, at last I have found you. You want a dime. Everything I have is yours. And he finishes with, I stood begging my own father for 10 cents when for 18 years he had been looking for me to give me all he had. Now this is, this is a small picture of what God wants to do for his children. His supreme goal in bringing us to himself is to make us like himself by filling us with himself with all that he is and has. What a God who loves us so much that he will not rest until we are completely like him. And finally, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Now when the Holy Spirit has empowered us, and Christ has indwelt us, love has mastered us, and God has filled us with his own fullness, then he is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we would ever ask or think. Extend this to any body of believers, and you have the foundation of a very strong church. It remains only to say to him, be glory in the church. Shall we pray? Thank you, Jesus, for indwelling each of us with your spirit so that we can be used for your honor and glory. Bless this church and bless our families. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.